Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined today by someone who periodically likes to call himself an American, Coach Trevor Connor. Periodization is, in many ways, the pinnacle of advanced training. Taking the step to periodize graduates you to a professional approach, one with purpose, long-term vision, and organized planning. But periodization can also be confusing and, frankly, a little scary. Periodizing your training means diving into a world of new concepts, things like training blocks, mesocycles, and increasing specificity. For those of us with jobs, families, who have to deal with inclement weather, it's harder to plan ahead, to know on Monday what we might fit in on Friday, let alone how to plan our next four weeks of transition. Looking at it in that context, it's hard to fault those who just want to hop on Zwift and start smashing it when they have a rare spare hour. The question is, does periodization need to be that complicated? And while it may be a necessity for pros, can it help those of us with only seven or eight hours to train each week? For answers to those very questions and many more, let's take a deep dive with a man credited with bringing periodization to cycling back in the 1990s, Joe Friel. Today, we'll discuss first, what exactly is periodization? The truth is it's not as complicated and scary as it may sound. At its simplest, it's just a way of structuring your season to prepare for your target races. Heard about base training in the winter, top end work in the spring, that's periodization. We'll talk about the history of periodization from its first use among Soviet athletes to its introduction to cycling. We'll discuss the principles of training, including overload, specificity, reversibility, and individualization. These four concepts are at the core of periodization. With those principles as our base, we'll dive into the different forms of periodization, starting with traditional linear periodization. It's the oldest and most common form but that doesn't mean it isn't effective. Next, we'll talk about reverse periodization and why it might not be best for the weekend warrior, even if Chris Froome is doing it. Next, we'll talk about non-linear forms of periodization, including undulating periodization and the most recently developed strategy called block periodization. Then we'll finish up with a few tips on how to pick a periodization strategy that's right for you, assuming you want to use one at all. Our guest today is, of course, legendary coach Joe Friel, who just recently published a new edition of the popular Cyclist Training Bible. The first edition back in the 1990s introduced periodization to cyclists, but it only covered traditional periodization. This new edition covers all of the strategies we discuss in this podcast. We'll also briefly hear from Sepp Kuss of the Jumbo Visma World Tour team, who surprisingly tried periodization for the first time last season as a World Tour rider. Next, we talk with Paolo Sarana, among other things, the coach of Mike Woods of the EF Education First team, who has very unique periodization approaches with both his top pros and the Masters athletes he coaches. Finally, we'll hear from Colby Pierce, regular contributor to Fast Talk, friend of the show, who will give his opinion on periodization and how to pick an approach for you. So, dust off your copy of the Training Bible. Let us, let us make you fast. So, I mean, periodization is remarkably complex, and I think a lot of people get really scared away by it when they, they hear about it. You know, that, that's, that's what the pros do, but that's too complicated for me to do. So I think probably before we get into linear periodization and reverse linear periodization and block periodization, maybe we take a, a big picture overview and just start with, in one sentence, what would you say periodization is? Yeah, that's, that's a good that's a good question because I think what's happened with the topic of periodization over the years is it's become very complex to the point that people don't really understand what is being discussed by sports scientists when they talk about periodization. I, I would say periodization is simply turning away that prepares the athlete to race by thinking of turning in periods when and, and certain things are done during these periods to improve preparation. The bottom line then is that periodization is really all about preparing to race. That's something people can can get their heads around because when you're talking about, well, I'm, I'm going to do slow training in the winter, I'm going to do some more race-specific work during the, the season, and then taper for a race, that, that's pretty simple to put, wrap your head around, and that's a form of periodization. It is, yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I would try to keep it simple. I'm, I'm sure we'll, this is going to become a much more complex conversation. But for most athletes, if you can just keep it simple, they'll do quite well. If they're really into sports science and all the stuff about periodization, they can certainly experiment with things and see what works best for them. But the bottom line is we're talking about very small changes from keeping things simple to making things extremely complex in terms of what the benefits are going to be for the athlete. So it's coming down to basically seconds instead of minutes. Maybe you could start by giving us a quick history of periodization. Yeah, sure. It's actually kind of a, it came from Eastern Europe, mostly, mostly Russia, but it was uh, fine-tuned by some of the other Soviet bloc countries back in the, oh gosh, especially the 1960s. But I guess we could actually trace it back to the 1920s. There was a Russian back then who was working on some very basic ideas about how to train athletes. And those ideas were just the very early foundations of what we now call periodization. It wasn't nearly as complex as, as it is now. But the big, the big growth took place in the 1950s and 60s, again, from Eastern uh, European countries. And it was kind of a, a state secret. Nobody was really knew exactly how the Russians, and the East Germans, uh, and so forth um, were training. But it was they were doing very, very well. Later on, we found out, of course, they were also doping, which had a lot to do with it. Uh, but they were they were they were periodizing too, which was something that we now consider to be normal, but back in those days was unheard of outside the Soviet bloc. And uh, in the early 70s, it finally began to leak how the Eastern country, Eastern European countries were, were periodizing their, their athletes' training. And the first uh, Western athlete to, to learn about it and try it was a runner by the name of Lasse Viren. And in 1972, he won gold medals in, in the Olympics in 10,000 meters and 5,000 meters, which is the first time that ever happened. It's called a double-double. And then he kind of disappeared from the radar for the next four years, and everybody kind of thought he was done. And then lo and behold, he comes back again in 1976, and he wins 5,000 and 10,000 again. And he basically, he he was periodizing and, and nobody else in Western society was really doing this. So from the early 70s, the word began to get out what periodization was all about. And it began to catch hold with elite uh, endurance athletes, runners especially. It really wasn't until the 1980s that I began to see anything on it that was related to amateur athletes. But it was really quite distant from what amateurs were, were doing at the time, especially cyclists. Cyclists at the time, they're what they did for planning for a race was just to find out how many hours the Europeans were putting in the saddle and duplicate that number of hours in the saddle. And that was, that was planning. By the 1990s, when I decided to write the first book, The Cyclist Training Bible, that was 1995, by that point, it was starting to be seen fairly often in, in the literature, but it really wasn't trickling down to the, the, the athletes yet. And so when I wrote the first book, First Training Bible, I wrote it based on uh, the most common, the most basic form of periodization, so I wouldn't overwhelm people with ideas on periodization. It's called linear periodization. I'm sure we'll come back to that later on in this uh, in this interview. But and just uh, to give the, the listeners a little bit of context here, you have really been credited with bringing periodization to cycling. The first time anybody had really heard of it in cycling was your first edition of, of the Cyclist Training Bible. Yeah, and that, that's thank you very much for saying that. But basically, uh, that's why I made the, the thing simple the first time I wrote it because there, it really wasn't quite as complex as it is right now. But there were more ideas out there than this most basic concept called linear periodization. So in that book, all I all I explained was linear periodization because there really wasn't any reason to go into all the the variations on linear. So that's what I wrote, and then. The most recent book, I've gone into more detail since it's becoming more popular now. People understand more about it. And are there core principles that flow through every type of periodization that are essential? Yeah, there are. There are things that we call the principles of training that are kind of at the heart of sports science. And they're real simple concepts. One is this, is the idea of the progressive overload, the, the load the athlete experiences on, on over time, in other words, from week to week, those loads need to increase. If they stay the same, there's going to be a plateauing effect and the athlete isn't going to experience the benefit. So over time, those uh, loads need to be increasing. In other words, more intensity or more duration, those are the only two things the athlete can change in a workout. One or both of those things have to be changing over time to challenge the body so that it adapts to the in, in the direction you're trying to go with your training. So that's the first one's called progressive overload. Then there's specificity of the training. All that means is the training must be like what you're training for. We can talk about the weight room, for example. In the weight room, doing things like there are things you can do in the weight room to improve your performance on the bike. One of those things, for example, might be doing squats with a heavy barbell. 
because it simulates the movement of pedaling a bicycle. It's specific. But doing curls in the weight room is not going to do anything at all to make you a better cyclist. It's not specific to the, to the movement of pedaling a bicycle. So, and that's the way all training must be. It must become increasingly specific over time. So that by the time you get down to the last few weeks before the race, you're doing workouts that are very much like the race. So your, your work, your training is becoming increasingly specific to the events you're training for. If you're training for, for events like a road race, then your training must be like a road race. Criterium must be, have those characteristics of time trial again, must have those characteristics the closer you get to the race. So that's rather simple also. And most people understand that, that they can't be doing things that are, that are way outside the realm of what the, race demands. The third is the concept of reversibility, that if you quit training or quit doing those, those specific things, you'll gradually lose the fitness gains, the adaptations that have taken place over the time you were doing those things. So if I, if I quit doing uh, high-intensity workouts, what's going to happen is I'm going to lose my high-intensity fitness over time. It won't disappear immediately, but it will be reversed over time and it will go away, which is basically the idea that if you quit training, if you quit training, it's obvious you're going to lose your fitness. And that's, that's just reversibility being applied at the highest level. And finally, of these principles that are really kind of at the core of sports science, the last one is individuality. And the bottom line is we're all unique. Uh, we're not just a bunch of robots that have exactly the same things happening. We're people. And because of that, there are just lots of things that are different about us. So not, not only is our physiology different, some people are anaerobic and some people are highly aerobic, for example, but our lifestyles are different also. Some people have very stressful lifestyles and some people have very low-stress lifestyles. And that stress can be physical or psychological. Again, there are just a lot of things that go into deciding what works best for the individual athlete. Always, that must be kept in mind that although something works for your training partner, doesn't mean it's going to work for you. So that that's basically the, the basic principles that periodization is, is, is based on. And so I found this really interesting. I went back and looked at Isaron's review. So Isaron was, was, I think we can say that he's been credited as one of the inventors of block periodization or certainly somebody who, who's brought it to the, the forefront. And when I, I look back at his paper, he started it with essentially the same four principles as yours. And saying, sure. this, is, this is how our physiology works and, and at the heart of any good periodization strategy you, you need to bear the, these principles in mind. And the one thing I will say is progressive overload on its own is not a periodization strategy. The whole idea of I'm just going to train more and harder and get stronger doesn't work. Yeah, we all have limits. And uh, at some point, we're going to run up, run up against those limits. And uh, I'm afraid too many athletes train that, that way exactly. They just, they just keep trying to pile on more and more and more. And, and eventually, they, they can't do it. They break down. They Motivation becomes low or they overtrain. So lots of problems can develop out of that way of thinking. So in your book, you had a line that you repeated many times that you said kind of one way to describe periodization or how to do it, it's this. And I wanted to ask you about that. And the line is basically training should become increasingly more like your races. So what did you mean by that? Yeah, uh, increasingly is, is a key word there. That refers to time. So many weeks, even months away from your your most important race of the season, the training can be quite general. It doesn't have to be specific at all. So now I'm talking about the four, one of the four core principles, again, specificity. And I'm saying that the farther away you are from your race, specificity really is less important. Specificity becomes increasingly support, important as you move on the calendar toward your race. So as I mentioned earlier, if you, as you get down to the last few weeks before your race, the training must be as close as you can make it like the race that you're training for. So that, that needs to be a critical, that, that's a critical idea here that really all periodization is, is about is dividing the year into periods of time and then training in ways that prepare us uh, for the specificity of, of the race that uh, we're getting ready for. So just to give a, a very quick kind of simplified version we're talking about with the specificity or increasing specificity. If you had somebody who was targeting a crit, what sort of work would you expect them to be doing at, at the beginning of their base season versus what would they be doing a couple weeks out from the race? Yeah, it's good. that's a good question because that brings it down to the, the nitty gritty of the real situation for a real athlete. Bottom line is because when we're several months away from the race, and the, the workouts don't have to be specific. In fact, now being general is quite good. The non-specific non -specific training could be things like long, slow rides. 
That would be that would be non-specific to a criterion. It'd be just exactly the opposite of what a criterion is all about. So that would be a starting place, a starting concept, starting idea. And over time, what would happen is churning would be progress gradually from that starting point to the point, as you suggested, two weeks before the race, where the athlete is doing workouts that are exactly like the race. In other words, they're probably getting involved in lots of group rides, maybe even doing some low-priority uh, uh, criterium races, because those things are much are exactly like the race that you're preparing for. So that so there has to be, but there has to be a process then that takes place between that starting point, several months away or several months out from the race, and as we get down to the last couple of weeks before the race. And this progress must be gradual as opposed to sudden. We're not going to go from all of a sudden going from long, slow distance to extremely high intensity race-like workouts. So there's a gradual progression that takes place over time. This is stuff that comes out of sports science. It's really not necessary to understanding periodization, but these, if somebody reads about periodization, they're going to read about the concepts. The, the overall concepts from sports science are that there's, there are periods of training called general specificity, uh, which means that they're, they're not really exactly like the race. They're quite general. It's, it's training that is for the criterium racer, which is, it would be something like long, slow distance, as mentioned a while ago. Um, and there's, there's specific preparation. So we have general preparation, which is many, many weeks out from the race. And then we have specific preparation, which is the last few weeks before the race. So we've got these two broad categories of training. The specific preparation period is followed by a period of race preparation, which we call peaking. And so that, that then leads the athlete up to the race. So that in sports science, those are the three overriding categories. And I might add one more there. After that, after the race is over, there's a period sports scientists also refer to called a transition period where you transition from where you've just been, the race you just completed, to starting to think about the next race. And so there's things that happen in training during that period of time also. So that, that's in sports science, how this language is used. I tried to break that down when I wrote the first book for um, the Cyclist Training Bible in the language that is more like the language that, that we use as, as coaches. And so um, it's things like a prep period, which is very, very early in the season. So, so let's say an athlete has got their first race in you know May, first high-intensity race is going to be in May criterion. That means someplace around uh, November, December, the athlete is starting to think about getting back into into training again for that race. And so they're going to start with a period which I basically just call prep. It's just we're going to prepare to, to get ready to train. We're not really training yet. We're just going to prepare to get ready to train. And so the athlete is is just starting to increase workouts again. And they don't even have to be specific at all. Don't even have to be on the bike. The athlete could be running, could be cross-country skiing, snowshoeing, doing things that are very active, but not necessarily on a bicycle, although that may be done also. But the idea is just to get back into very, very general fitness again, very general aerobic fitness by doing things that are quite non-race-like. Then the athlete moves into a period I call the base period, which is in what we're going to what we'll discuss, I'm sure, later on. Linear periodization is a time when the athlete is working on, on training duration, especially primarily working on longer, slower rides, especially zone two rides or those rides around the aerobic threshold. The base so this period. is your general non-specific phase. Yeah, that, that's that general um, preparation period that the sports scientists talk about. So we have prep and base combined. That would be the general preparation period. Then that base period transitions toward the end of it in what I call base three. In other words, I divided. These are called mesocycles. And so base one, base two, base three, and each one lasts typically three, four weeks. Last of those base mesocycles, base three, the athlete begins to go through a, a metamorphosis in their training. They begin to change, change things slightly, increasing emphasis on intensity, but it's not highly intense yet. Just starting to increase the intensity a little bit as they cut back on the, um, the volume. That then moves the athlete into the beginning of what sports scientists call the specific preparation period, specific to the race. And I broke that down into, uh, in my language in the book, into the build period which is typically going to last for about six, eight, nine weeks, something like that. Uh, and that's going to be training effort that becomes increasingly like the race. So now we're starting to emphasize that the criterium race are starting to emphasize high-intensity training. 
then at some place before the race, the athlete is going to begin to taper their training. Taper means to cut back on, on the volume of training. Durations start getting shorter as the intensity remains high. And that could last anywhere from, from about two weeks or actually even 10 days out to three weeks. It kind of depends on the athlete and the number of variables there. A couple of weeks of peaking for the race, tapering. And then finally, the week of the race, which I consider a separate um, period of preparation for the race. And that's typically in my system way of looking at the thing is, is seven days. The week That week finishes with the race. And then the athlete begins what the sports science is referred to as the transition period. We're now starting to think about the next race and taking a break from the routine of having prepared for the previous race. And that's what you've described there is probably the way that 70, 80% of the athletes out there uh, periodize and very effectively periodize their, their training. Particularly, I love the fact that you're, you're talking about these, you know, we hear all these big terms that kind of scare people away, but everybody's heard of a mesocycle and probably has wondered what that is. That's just simply a fancy term for a, a particular period in your training. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's like the base period is a mesocycle. And, or the build period or whatever, whichever of those periods we're talking about is a mesocycle. And, and there's lots of other language that goes into this periodization thing, which is really not important for the athlete to understand at all. But that's, that's the term most likely to someone would run across in reading about periodization. Would you also say that each period prepares you for the next period? Yeah. In, in a good periodization plan, there is a, a flow. That flow assumes that we're going to take the next step. We're not going to try to take you know, gigantic leaps forward. We're going to take the next small step toward uh, changing how, what we're doing in training. And those small steps are going to lead to um, greater specificity over the, tor- over the course of time, several weeks. And so consequently, what we want to do is we want to uh, realize where we're starting from and where we're trying to get to race day and what's required to get there. You know, I guess my way of seeing the world as a coach has always been that it's kind of like being a, an engineer. An engineer basically solves problems. The problem a coach comes up against is you have an athlete who's training for a certain race, and the athlete has a goal, let's say it's to podium for that race. And we have to assume that right now the athlete can't podium for that race, is not ready to podium for that race. So my job as a coach is to decide what's standing between that athlete and success, success being on the podium. And so then I have to measure what the athlete is capable of doing right now and what they have to be capable of doing on race day, decide what the differences between these two and begin to address those issues in training. So those things become the most specific aspects of training as we get closer and closer to the race. Chris caught up with pro tour rider Sepp Kuz, who rides with Jumbo Visma and was this year's winner of the Tour of Utah. Sepp employed a more traditional periodization strategy this year, which he found helped in many ways. But as you'll hear, he also discovered the importance of correctly timing the general and specific preparation phases. I don't know if you were following a sort of a traditional periodized training plan or not, but has that periodization that you use, whether linear or otherwise reverse or whatever method you were using, has it changed since? joining Lotto Yumbo? And if so, how has it changed and why did it change? I'd say since, yeah, since joining Lotto Yumbo, it's um, been more more periodized, I think, more tr- traditional. But I think that I almost anticipated. I think, yeah, you're, you're racing so so early in the year and also late in the year that Maybe, maybe just from a mental standpoint, you need that just more preparatory phase to last a little bit longer, more basic, not too many, I guess, mentally draining intervals and uh, specificity kind of in the December, January months. So you anticipated a, a change to a more traditional periodization method. How has that worked for you? I think in the beginning of the season, it was maybe a bit of a shock to the system because, you know, you go from really not having that many race-specific efforts and then all of a sudden you're you're racing. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, that, that feels a bit foreign, you know, those kind of heavier race-type efforts that, that you maybe wouldn't do as much in a, that time frame within the, the periodized um, type of training. So I, I think that was the first thing I noticed. 
and then I felt like with within that periodized, if you're if you're just a little bit on the back foot, then at least for me, I was going to a lot of races that were really difficult, and I I just still didn't have that specificity um, in my training, and then it was kind of putting me a bit on the back foot. So I think you know, looking back, you you could maybe benefit from, or I I could benefit from. Um, yeah, being a bit more prepared for those race efforts, so you're not digging yourself into a hole when you have races every every week. Let's get back to the show and talk further about the specifics of traditional periodization. Let's dive into some of these linear models and start with the the most common, the oldest linear periodization. Maybe we we start there, Joe. And I got to ask, why is it the most common? It's the most common because number one, it was the first one to ever be used. This is when I mentioned. Russian Soviet athletes, uh, Western Eastern Bloc athletes, churning back in the 50s and 60s. This is what they were doing. So it's been around the longest. It's referred to as as classic linear periodization often because it, it goes back to the earliest models that were used with, with athletes. It's pretty easy to understand. It's quite commonly used, produced some of the best athletes in the history of, of endurance sport over many, many decades. So it's quite effective. But as with almost anything else, there are some downsides to it. So basically all it is, we're going from a, a starting with the athlete doing things which are related to, to volume and duration and low intensity. So the athlete is doing a lot of long, slow rides. Uh, they're not doing really any high intensity right now at all when they're in the very early stages of, of linear periodization. But over time, through this prep base build and so forth I talked about earlier, over time, the athlete is going to introduce more high intensity to their training in small bites, uh, trying not to overwhelm them, their, their system with, with too much stress too early on. So the body, the body just needs time to adapt to all these things. Intensity is very hard to adapt to for the body. Consequently, we need to be very gentle with how we introduce it. It just can't be the sort of thing where you go from, from zero high intensity to all of a sudden doing gigantic long intervals, you know, eight-minute intervals at, above the threshold you know, for a, for a half hour or more, that's just not going to work out for uh, almost any athlete. They need this kind of gradual process they have to, to do to get ready for to get ready for it. So that's this whole process. That's we start with in linear with doing long, slow distance and gradually over time, churning introduces higher intensity so that by the time we get to the build period, high intensity is becoming the, the focus of churning. No longer is it the duration that's important or the volume. Now it's the intensity. And that become, that intensity becomes more like the race as they progress through the build uh, period and the peak period and the race period. So that, it's a very, very common way of training. I, and in fact, it's so common that athletes and, and even coaches sometimes think it is by definition periodization. They think everything that is periodization, when you use the word, you're referring to that because it's so commonly done. But the word periodization implies it really encompasses a lot of methodologies for preparing to race. And this is only one of those methodologies, but happens to be the oldest and probably the most common. But you did mention that there are some issues with it. So what are the, the concerns about the, the linear model? Well, one of the concerns is that things do change very slowly. And so for athletes who, are, who get bored easily, they'll find this to be a very boring method of training. Because all we're going to do, for example, is in the base period, we're going to increase. The workouts are going to stay the same every week for a few weeks. And all we're going to do is increase the, the duration of the workouts. There's not going to be much change takes place there. And then when they get into the, to the build period, they're going to start off with, again, basic levels of uh, the basic ways of training, doing these the interval workouts, for example. And over time, they'll just simply add more intensity to the workouts. So it's going to be basically remain the same, but, but only slightly increase over time in, in terms of the amount of intensity that the athlete is doing. So it becomes a rather mundane, boring, some athletes would call it, way of training although quite effective. If athletes don't get bored with training, if they, if they enjoy doing those sorts of things, they'll find this to be a very, very effective method. If those who are easily bored and they want more variety in their training, then this is probably not the best option. There's also a concern with peaking because with this model, you can only peak, what, two, three times in a season? Yeah, that's right. That's going to hold up for several models because it has to do with what happens to your fitness when you, uh, when you taper. I mentioned a while ago, we talked about this one one period called the peak period. And during that period, which lasts roughly two weeks, one week to two weeks, the athlete is going to cut back on, on training duration. So volume will decrease while intensity remains high. 
And by doing that, what we're doing essentially is giving away some of the aerobic fitness, base fitness that was developed back very early in the season. We're starting to give that up because we're not doing nearly as much of it. This is the reversibility principle being applied. So if we, we quit doing something, it eventually goes away, and that's what's happening. So we're, that's why this, this period has to, has to be so short. A week to two weeks is about all we're going to do this because we're going to cut back on volume and duration a lot for our, our training as the emphasis becomes intensity, and therefore we're going to start losing some of this aerobic fitness. So consequently, we've got to be kind of careful with how many races we do. I get I had an athlete send me a, a text message, or not text message, but an email not too long ago, and asked why he couldn't simply be in on in race form every week of the year, 52 weeks out of the year. Why not be in race form all the time? <laughs> and he's missing the concept here. The concept is that to be in peak form, you have to rest. You have to give rid of the fatigue. That's what that's what peak form is all about. And uh, if all you're doing every day, every, every week for 52 weeks is reducing your training, you're going to wind up doing absolutely nothing by the end. And consequently, you're not going to be ready to race at all. So it's just the opposite. You can't you can't do that. There's only so many races we can do in a season. And peak for each one because peaking requires somewhere around two or three weeks of reduced training. And that two or three weeks of reduced training means a loss of, of aerobic fitness. I've worked with a, a couple pros who, no choice of their own, their team basically said, you're going to, to 12, 13 races in a row, like basically, um, pretty much every week. And whenever I, I've had to deal with that situation, it's no longer about, we're going to get you on your best form for all these races. It becomes a how do we get you through this without losing too much fitness and without being completely burnt out? Right. Um, you know, everybody thinks of, oh, if I race every weekend, I'm going to be super, super strong. But no, it's, it's really not that. You, you really start to decline quite rapidly. Racing is, and training also, by the way, are both stressful. Races are the most stressful form of activity an athlete can do in the sport. You can only take so much stress. There's only so much you can handle. And I've, I've seen athletes not only completely burn out, but also become overtrained because all they're doing is going from one race to another and never getting a chance to, to take a break and recover, not only physically, but mentally. And it just it becomes highly, highly stressful over time for the athlete. That's linear periodization in a nutshell. It might use some fancy terms, but the fact is, it's really not that complex. Most of us already understand the basics, and it's effective. So why would we want to do something else or add complexity? Well, we caught up with Paolo Saldana, the owner of Power Watts and a top Canadian coach who got Michael Woods to the podium at Worlds in 2018. Paolo explains why, when dealing with regular riders like us, he may not periodize at all, and also why he may flip or reverse the order with some of his athletes. Woods used a very unique periodization strategy, but moving away from a guy who can stand on the podium at, at a World Championships... When we're talking more about your, your masters or your local amateur type rider, do you have particular periodization strategies that you employ or is it very individual to the athlete? It's extremely individual. I, I really have a hard time building templates and trying to fit athletes into templates. And the first thing I'm going to tell you, which may actually shock you, is that I don't believe in periodization when it comes to weekend warrior type of athletes who really have between four and 12 hours a week to train. I don't believe that periodization in the classical form, at least, really, it's just a, it's just a it's it's a fancy word for organization in a way that you want to continuously and progressively uh, stress and stimulate the athlete. I don't really do it in the in the traditional way. Like I don't believe that we should build this massive yearly plan with someone who's working at a bank and doing loans all day and 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 then he's got an hour and a half to do what he needs to do in the evening after work. You can't periodize a guy like that because they're time crunched individuals and it's really hard to build any amount of foundational work or even capacity work on an irregular basis. So what I do when it comes to weekend warrior type athletes, I find out what their time constraints are and then I look at where their gaps are regarding their mean maximal power curve. And then I try and figure out the best strategy to pull up that power curve using high intensity interval training for as much of the year as possible. There are little elements. So for example, I'll do a six week block of power-based training on their weak gaps, and then I'll give them a recovery week, and then I'll have them do a 10 day block of endurance. And then I'll repeat that structure, but the next time through, instead of maybe a, a, a six week block of power development, it might only be four, but we get more pointy on the edge of the sword. And then I might give them only a seven-day block of endurance. 
And then I'll come back the last round and I'll say, now we're going to do three weeks of very high intensity interval training. I'm going to give you another recovery block and then maybe four to six days of some endurance with each endurance phase is obviously a little bit more intense. And usually that type of structure works well for that endurance athlete, these weekend warrior cyclists, or even the masters-based cyclists. Now, there are some master-based cyclists who train like, like pros because they're free and they're retired. And that would be probably a slightly different approach. But when you're time crunched, these are the types of things that I would, I would suggest from a periodization perspective. Now, so one thing I find interesting here is you mentioned this when we talked about woods uh, and you're bringing this up again now. You do the high intensity and then you do the endurance work, not the other way around, which is the more traditional way of, of doing it. Is there a, a yes. reason for that? Yes. Um, so, so think about it. Why traditionally do we do endurance-based conditioning? Like why do we build an endurance base? I mean, we want to try and make sure we have enough blood volume. We want to make sure we have the good capillary density and all the m metabolism that goes on in the muscle. We need to promote fat burning. We need to do a lot of things with endurance that are important for performance. But when you have an athlete who's 45 years old or 55 years old, and that athlete has been training for 10 years, or you have an athlete like Mike Woods who comes from a running background, who ran his whole life almost, and has been very active his whole life, who's already built uh, the metabolic machinery required for high-performance sport. Why would you then try and reinvent that metabolic machinery? You just really have to stimulate it to wake it up. It's like saying, I'm going to build a house, and I'm going to start by the foundation, but then next year, I'm going to relay that foundation because I need to relay that foundation. It doesn't make any sense. So I don't relay foundation that doesn't need to be relayed. So the reason I flip that on its head is because it's way more impactful to use high intensity interval training that addresses the gaps in the mean maximal power curve to get improvement from a rider than it is to build an aerobic base because building an aerobic base for you to even get the response that you want from your body, you have to encounter things like glycogen depletion. And how do you expect to do that with a guy who lives in Minnesota and has a, a you know, a, a copy trainer or whatever in his basement. And, and, you know, he's not going to ride for four hours on a, on a, on a set of rollers or a, or a turbo trainer. Right. So it's, it, it's about practicality. It's about blending practicality with getting the most bang for your buck together. And that's what I, when I, whenever I talk to, uh, to other coaches, and I work with a lot of other coaches, but whenever I talk to them about preparation, you have a spectrum of that, that on the left side is pure science, and on the right side is pure art. And what I just described to you is taking both of those extremes and merging them together and coaching, essentially, to me, it's like a cell. The cell has a nucleus of science with a phospholipid bilayer or skin of art. And everything that comes through, everything that comes through that, that cellular membrane is viewed through the layer and the lens of art. And what the athlete gets is the art piece, but it's rooted in science. So that's kind of how I approach that thing. I went a little off topic there, but, but it's important concept to grasp when it comes to understanding how to prepare athletes on a wide spectrum of ability. I love it. And we did tell you, you can take a deep dive into the science. That was not where I was expecting you to take the deep dive with uh, talking phospholipid bilayers, but that was great. I love the analogy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, approach. Now that Paolo has let the cat out of the bag, let's get back to the show and talk about reverse periodization with Joe. All right, Joe, let's flip this on its head a little bit. I think a lot of listeners out there have probably heard the term reverse periodization or reverse linear periodization. They might have heard uh, world tour teams doing this. It's buzzworthy. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about reverse periodization? Yeah, basically all we're doing is taking the concept I just talked about with linear periodization. Basically, we call linear periodization starts with long, slow distance, and finishes with last few weeks before the race with very high intensity training. So reverse linear periodization is just the opposite of that. It starts with high intensity training, and over time reduces the amount of high intensity training and increases the amount of uh, 
volume or basically uh, duration, long, slow workouts the athlete is are doing to get ready for their race. So, so it's very unique to the to racing. Uh, it's not for everybody. If you're preparing for some event that requires a lot of long, slow, slow being a quite relative term, realize we're talking. You mentioned a pro athlete a little while ago. We're talking about pro athletes. Slow is a probably a great deal different definition than right, it is for right. for a cat four. So slow is relative to the athlete we're talking about. But basically, uh, we're cutting back on on the uh, high intensity and starting to do more volume as we get closer to the race. This is going to work for certain type of events. Uh, doing something like a, a Grand Fondo, it would be probably pretty good for that because it's got it's got a lot of po- possibilities for uh, for that because the athlete is not going to have to be too worried about a lot of high intensity. There may be some climbing. There may be some some group work that's being done where the athlete takes a turn pulling or something. But it's not going to be these things that have to do with like you're in a two-hour road race. It's going to be decided by what happens on a, on a hill or what happens in a with a breakaway into the winds, you know, or something like that, which is going to change the, the situation entirely. The athlete must be prepared for high intensity in that case. But if it's not going to be a high intensity type event, then this might work quite well for it, like a Grand Fondo. I would even point out here, I think uh, reverse periodization has become somewhat sexy because people are hearing about Chris Froome or, or some of the heroes potentially doing this and thinking, well, that's the better way to train. But just like you said, you, you think of a race like the Tour de France, as, as much as that is a huge event, that it's incredibly impressive just to get through it. For these guys going to the Tour, you have to understand 95 plus percent of their time in that race, and it's a lot of time, is low intensity. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, low intensity by their standards. Um, right, not by ours. Not by ours. Uh, so they, they are not, what, what they're preparing for is a very, very long, relatively slow event. Now, they're averaging something like 25 miles per hour for three weeks. That's really quite fast by my standards anyway. But for them, it's really not that huge a challenge, especially riding in, in a peloton. We're talking about Chris Firm. Chris is being protected by his his team, if you will, from the wind until it comes to certain situations. Climbs, for example, time trials. And, and now he's got to be able to apply the high intensity. It's not going to be like the entire three weeks is very high intensity. It's going to be extremely high volume is what it's going to be. So it, it probably works better for that type of event than it does for the athlete who's training for a, for a two-hour road race. Um, their situations are entirely different. The athlete trained for a two-hour road race doesn't need a gigantic amount of duration to get ready for two hours but does have to have a gigantic amount of intensity because there's going to be a lot of a lot of uh, these little breaks that take place throughout the race, these these uh, accelerations that take place that the athlete must deal with. And consequently, it's got to be prepared for a lot of high intensity. So a, a different situation altogether. I could see somebody being tempted to want to use reverse periodization because it fits better with seasons. What I mean by that is, okay, uh, I start my training in November, December, January, I don't want to be doing really long, slow rides this time of year. I'll just flip it around. I'll do all my shorter, high-intensity workouts in those times of the year when it's cold and nasty out, and then slowly introduce the long rides when it gets nicer. What's the danger in that? Well, the danger in that, and I certainly understand a lot of athletes do that, I, I, and with, I can certainly support their thinking on this also. They just can't get outside on the road. When it's snowing or, you know, the sun goes down at five o'clock in the afternoon and they'd rather not spend a lot of time indoors on a trainer. In that case, this probably looks quite, quite nice to them. But the, the downside, the danger of it is you wind up on race day being prepared for a long, slow distance event, but it's a criterion. And so you're really not ready for that kind of event. But that, that then there's ways of getting around that issue where we could we'll deal with this in a little bit, I'm sure, but we'll get, we can get into something that has to do with undulating or changing the, the way the, the mix between duration and volume are being done, or duration and intensity are being done in training to produce um, higher f- fitness on race day that matches the needs of the athlete to the to the specific event, but doesn't require cutting back entirely during the the winter months on uh, longer slower rides. For example, uh, there hopefully some place where the athlete lives, there are breaks in the weather where you don't have you know, it's not going to be always going to be every day, uh, snowing, icy roads. There may be days, there could be places like that that I'm not aware of, but most places I'm aware of, 
there are breaks in the, in the weather, uh, for example, on the weekend, and the athlete can get out and get in some of these longer rides. So I could see doing some shorter rides during, uh, on the trainer indoors during the week, Monday through Friday, perhaps. The sun's gone down already by the time you're home from work. And then on the weekend, getting outside and doing some of these longer, slower rides when the weather breaks, so you get a chance to, to get both things done. And then kind of playing around with that thing of how do I blend in intensity versus volume or, or duration, let's put it that way, how long is the workout, relative to the weather. And so wherever we can, trying to fit in some of the stuff that works with long, slow distance or aerobic fitness training during the, uh, the winter months when it's difficult to get outside on the road um, as you'd like to. So you said when we were talking about linear periodization that it's very hard for the, for the body. You don't want to take giant steps between your slow base period and times of uh, high intensity. If you're starting with high intensity in this reverse periodization model, how does your body cope with that? And is it a little bit of intensity and then the second week is a little bit more and then a little bit more and you, you start it that way? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, basically they have to be balanced. Uh, to whatever to what the athlete can can manage, and they really can't start off by doing something like twenty times two minutes at uh, one hundred twenty percent of FTP with one minute recoveries. It's just not going to work. You just aren't ready to handle that. So basically, the athlete has to work into this somewhat gradually, prepare the body for it, starting with where they are now, and that's the hard part is deciding where is the athlete right now, and then adding on to it as the early part of the base period uh, progresses. It was actually a fascinating study done on this by uh, Dr. Seiler a couple of years ago, where they looked at the uh, hormonal effects of high intensity intervals on, on different periodization schedules. So in one, they had athletes start with very high intensity, hard intervals, and then actually reverse periodize and go towards longer, lower intensity intervals. And then they had a group that, that started with the, the lower intensity intervals and built up to the, the high intensity one. And the group that was started with the high intensity intervals uh, showed some signs of, of bigger volume of high intensity. They showed more signs of, of pushing burnout very early on. Their bodies just weren't ready for it. Yeah, I agree. That would happen. You know, the other interesting thing, so that was a series of studies. There was a, another study where they looked at these periodization schedules, again, starting with lower intensity intervals, building to higher intensity intervals, or vice versa, to see which produced greater gains. And the, the biggest conclusion of the study was they had a third group that just kind of every week they said, you pick what you want to do. You can do any interval you want. And they just mixed it up. Random, yeah. Uh, and that third group, they saw the least gains. So the, the other two, either increasing or decreasing, saw similar gains, though there was a slight, it wasn't significant, but an indication that the people that started with lower intensity and built towards higher intensity saw the best gain. Yeah, I was on a panel this last week with uh, Dr. Seiler, UK. These topics came up. It's an intriguing conversation. When you start talking sports scientists about periodization, they've got lots of doubts about the concept, but typically the research supports the concepts that, that, we've been, that we're using. But not 100% down down the uh, down the line. There's some research showing that periodization is no better than than random training. So it really kind of depends on what what study you look at and how they organize the study. But Siler's stuff is pretty good. He really is very very good at taking topics that are of uh, unique to to athletes, things that athletes are really concerned about, and then uh, trying to find the answers to those questions. He's he's a really good. His sports science is some of the best. That actually brings up a really good question because essentially that third group was doing a form of nonlinear, correct? Right. So yeah, let's turn our attention to those nonlinear models. Something we sort of started to allude to with mixing volume and intensity into different weeks to, to try to find that balance. And this is called undulating periodization, if I'm not mistaken. So maybe we dive in there. Yeah, this is one I mentioned, we talked a little while ago about linear periodization and one of the downsides being that it's maybe boring for some athletes because things don't change much from week to week. Undulating periodization is actually somewhat the opposite of that. Things change quite regularly from week to week. So, for example, in, uh, in week one of training, an athlete may do uh, high-intensity training and the next week do high-volume training with a low-intensity. And so these Mixing of these two concepts on, on a weekly basis can change throughout the season. So if the athlete um, has a lot of variation from one week to the next, and uh, it becomes kind of a stimulating way of training because you, you're looking forward to doing something different in the next few days from what you did in the last few days, 
Consequently, you don't get bored at all if you kind of look forward to the change taking place. So it's very good for, for athletes being mentally fresh to, to train that way. And it's something an athlete could play around with. This, I started to mention this a while ago in the weather situation uh, where an athlete could change this from, from week to week based on what they're seeing the weather do. Um, when they get an opportunity to get outside and train, they can do the longer, slower rides during the winter. And when they're forced to be inside, they can be doing higher intensity training. And so that's kind of undulating, but in this case, it's kind of on demand. It's kind of like whatever the weather allows is what we do. So, you know, it, it, and it could work in, there's many other ways that this undulating concept could work also. The most common way for endurance athletes is to vary churning week, weekly blocks by either duration or intensity. That's the most common way of doing it. So it sounds a little bit like you're saying you know, there, there's probably a little more science behind linear periodization being very, very effective, but we got to factor in life. We've got to factor in you want to enjoy this, the whole mental side, and, and maybe getting a little bit of this undulation in there makes it more enjoyable, more tolerable, and, and well, physiological gains might not be as perfect. You're, you're going to come into the season a little me more mentally fresh. Yeah, this is that individualization thing. We're not all the same when it comes to being able to put up with uh, routines. Some people don't like uh, routines that change very little from week to week. And other people are, you know, highly stimulated by the idea of being able to see small changes taking place over the course of time. So the athlete has to, and the coach have to decide what is appropriate and do whatever works best for that given athlete. Okay, so now let's move our attention to something that may be also a little bit buzzworthy, new, pretty advanced block periodization. Joe, what is block periodization, first of all? Now, block periodization is very interesting. Um, it's it really it's got to start by for working with elite athletes, um, especially salt road cyclists. What was the the whole premise of it is that athletes uh, at this level are very close to their upper limits as far as whatever the upper limit we're talking physiological upper limit may be. For example, we could be talking about aerobic capacities. Uh, elite athletes are at a very high level even before beginning to train. They're already at a very high level for their aerobic capacities or whatever the topic may be physiologically. And so they ha haven't got much room to, to uh, improve, to get to their highest level in whatever the metric may be we're looking at. And so with a linear periodization, basically the week involves working on two or three different things every week that have to do with fitness, only one of which may be something that would improve the athlete's aerobic capacity. So if an elite athlete is doing uh, linear periodization, they're probably only doing high intensity training that would improve their VO2 max once a week. And yet they're so close to what their max is that they'll not be able to achieve it by doing it once a week. You'll, they won't be able to get there because they're not stressed to put enough stress on the body within this one unique area of physiology. So block periodization says, okay, for this period of time, this block, which may be two, three weeks long, we'll say, for this block, we're going to emphasize only one thing. We're going to work on in this case, improving this athlete's aerobic capacity. That's going to be the focus of training is aerobic capacity. And all we're going to do besides that is maintain any things we've done up until this point in training. So there are only two types of workouts being done. One type is, is called dominant. It's the primary focus of training for this, for this athlete at this point in time. And we're going to do many, many workouts like that throughout the week. And the other is the secondary um, workout or maintenance work of training, maintenance form of training, which is being done on those things which have been achieved already in prior blocks of training. So we only have two things going on the entire week. And so consequently, the athlete can wind up doing a lot of aerobic capacity training and therefore bump up their aerobic capacity at a much higher, faster rate than they could have possibly done by following a linear periodization plan. So it works great uh, with that in mind that the athletes who are at very high levels of fitness, elite athletes, it works very well for them. It's unlikely to be nearly as effective for athletes who are much lower down the totem pole when it comes to race performance, how fit they are to begin with. They've probably got a lot of room to improve, for example, their aerobic capacities. And, and they can work on it once a week and see the change take place over time if they just simply allow enough weeks. But the elite athlete is so close that the, to their upper limits that they can't accomplish that because there's just too much time between those workouts. So that's that's the bottom line for this form of training. It's quite interesting, but I would not recommend it for most athletes. This goes back to what you were saying about the overload principle. As somebody who's much lower level, 
it doesn't take that big an overload to improve a system. So they can overload multiple systems at once, where once you're, you're getting close to your peak, when you're talking about your pro athletes, they need a huge overload. And if they're trying to overload multiple systems at, at that sort of level, they're just going to burn themselves out. So they have to break it. Well said. Yes, exactly right. The other interesting thing, I'm just looking at Izaron's diagram of block periodization, is it essentially takes the, the linear periodization model and repeats that six, seven times over the course of a season. So you do your general prep, you do your specific, then you do your transition, but you might do all that in, in four or five weeks, and then you repeat it again, and then you repeat it again, which I found fascinating. Yeah, he keeps coming back to these. So we could we could race several times throughout the year by by doing that. You know, every every few weeks, the athlete could be ready to race again. And so they could do more than typically what's done during a linear periodization plan, which is usually around three per year. Does it help for an athlete to understand such a complex system? Or would you say that most people training this method are relying on their coach to understand the, the complexities and the science behind it? Yeah, a good point. If the, if the athlete has a coach, this is the sort of thing that the coach should be aware of and, and using in, in the preparation of this athlete for the race. In that case, the athlete doesn't have to do anything more than follow the uh, the plan that, that the coach has come up with. But if the athlete is self-coached, this starts becoming a rather complex topic. You know, how do, how do I prepare for a race? What works best for me? In the book, I talk about these upsides and downsides of the various ways of training, and the athlete can decide based on that, which is perhaps better for them, which system is better for them to use. But the bottom line is it doesn't really have to be all that complex. The linear periodization plan works extremely well for most athletes. And I would suggest something like probably 90% of road cyclists can follow a linear periodization plan and do extremely well. That upper 10% may have to kind of look at things like, you know, I've talked about so far, like having more than three or races in a season and, and boredom and, and all these other being elite athletes and all these things that come into the, to the mix also. But that's a rather small group of people. Most people can just simply use the linear periodization, or even even if that seems like it's more than they want to deal with, all they really need to come up with is a, a standard training week. And if they can just simply repeat that week, week after week after week, and just make small changes in it over time, where some of the workouts that were starting out being high volume gradually over time become high intensity, if they can make those changes and just follow such a pattern, making sure the workouts become like the race, the closer they get to the race on the calendar, they're going to do quite well. They don't really need to make it all this complex with all these possibilities of, of methods. So I, I, in fact, I think keeping it simple is probably for most athletes the way to go. Yeah. And something just to quickly add to that, because a lot of people look at what the, the top pros are doing and saying, you know, that's what I should be doing because that's the most advanced form of training. A lot of your top pros now, they start racing in late January and they're racing through October. So for them, a linear periodization model actually is tough because they basically have a month and a half for the general preparation phase. And then their specific training phase would be nine months long and that doesn't work. So for them, they have to do something more advanced just to survive the season. But the rest of us, that's not an issue. And this is a, a good, proven, simpler model. Yes, I agree. Just, I, in fact, I think most athletes, would, if they just keep it as simple as they can, not get involved in all the dirty details, they'll, they'll do much better than they would otherwise. That being said, suppose someone out there is tempted to try something a little bit more complex, uh, or maybe they're an advanced rider and they know that a straight-up linear periodization is okay for them, but they want to try something new. What's your recommendation in terms of how long they need to try a new model before they can judge whether it's working for them or not? I mean, we're talking on an annual timeline for the most part in, in all of these. That's a long time to commit to something that you're unsure of if it's going to, to bring about the gains you're looking for. Yeah, well, the starting point for answering that question has to do with measuring something. We have to be able to see, you know, if we're going to try to come up with the answer of which is the best system for me, then we have to know what is the word best based upon. If, for example, we can measure, let's take one example, we measure the athlete's functional threshold power. That's a very common way of putting a, a number to fitness. And we can try uh, over the course of quite a bit of time, try several methodologies to see what produces the best FTP then we can, as an individual, come up with what is best for me. So I could, I could measure my FTP and I could try a minimum, I would say, of six weeks of training to see what, what it works, which of the systems works best for me, which of these methodologies. But it becomes rather tedious after a while if all you're doing is, you know, is linear periodization for six weeks and, 
working on trying to improve your FTP, and then you go to undulating periodization for six weeks and try to see what happens to your FTP. This will become uh, an experiment with one subject, and, and overall, it's probably the best way of doing it. But in the big picture, it's getting ready for, for a given race on a given day. It's not going to work out too well. Making too many changes uh, over time basically means we're not going to make any progress over time. So basically, I think what has to happen is the athlete has to pick one way of training of all these methods I've mentioned, start down that, that path, see how it goes um, by the time they get through um, uh, the complete base muscle cycle, for example, and decide at that point, is this still the best thing for me? Or should I be changing over now to undulating periodization? Because I haven't seen much change in my FTP or whatever we measured in terms of the base period. So now I can take a look at it in terms of two blocks of training and see how that goes. And that then has to be, you can't keep making changes every few weeks as you're going through the last, through the build period, getting ready for your race. You need to stick with one thing to get you ready for the race. But you've now got two big picture views of, of types of training. And you can decide, how does that work for me psychologically, mentally? Uh, am I, does it work out well with my level of, uh, of boredom? Can I put up with linear periodization? Or do I really prefer the other way of training because I tried also undulating? And then the next year, you decide, okay, now what am I going to do this next year? Am I going to use what I used last year? Or am I going to try something different? Or maybe it isn't next year. Maybe we've got for the second race of the season. The first race is in May, and the next A priority race is in late July. And so now I decide, okay, am I going to do the same thing I did to prepare for the first race? Am I going to do that, repeat portions of that again? Or am I going to change this around and try something else to see how that works for me? So we can do a lot of changing here, but you've got to give it a chance. You can't change it just every couple of weeks and expect to know what is better for the athlete. I would suggest it takes at least six weeks of training one way to find out how that's going. Um, and then you've got to compare it with something else you did for another six weeks, which is based on trying to establish the same improvement. So it's not an easy question to answer in terms of racing. If it wasn't for races, you could figure it out quite easily. But when you have a race coming up, mm -hmm. you don't want to be experimenting too much to find out what works right now for you. You want to get on with training for the race. But now you know we love getting local coaching legend and our record superstar, Colby Pierce, on the show. So before we give our final suggestions, let's check in quickly with Colby and get his thoughts on picking periodization strategies. The undercurrent of all my coaching prescriptions comes in context of the individuality of the client. So it's like I could make a general statement like, oh, I you know usually... If a client's had a proper break in the fall, meaning a month or two, and they're not acclimated to cycling, you start them off with easy miles and make sure they're conditioned and go in the gym and da-da-da-da-da, and all that's fine. But the reality is I have almost no clients who fit that mold. I've got people who live in warm weather year-round climates. I have riders who refuse to ride outside when it's below 40 degrees, who ride rollers for six months a year, literally. And I've got a lot of stuff in between. So for me, it's about it's hard to make a general statement on that, honestly, and I don't want to not answer the question, but the fact is you have to look at the individual needs of the client and say, where's this client coming from? Where are they going? Um, I'm not afraid to apply very stringent blocks of training, even in the winter, if I think that it's really what the client needs. If they have a gross deficiency that's just so out of line that it's going to be a rate limiting factor, then we're going to take this time to work on it and get it up to at least par so that then we can start a program that rotates through different energy systems and different training intensities and volumes so that then we can get them to be a more complete athlete. And I do find that from time to time. So there seems to be this trend right now of all these new and fancy types of, of periodization. Mm -hmm. So you hear about reverse periodization and yeah. a whole bunch of different terms. What's your feeling about that? Is, is that a good direction or is that just trying to put terms on the individualization? Or um, I think it can be a good direction in the sense that, I mean, all we really are doing is challenging the organism so that homeostasis changes. So you get a response. And, uh, you know, if someone's hideously out of shape and you start, you reverse periodize them and start them doing VO2s or even shorter intervals, are they going to adapt to that? Well, yeah. Is it going to suck? Probably. Um, I've done it. You know, I, I went into one season years ago, really out of shape and just said, I'm going to focus on VO2. And man, it's just like getting root canals endlessly. You And it comes at a high price. You have to be very, very motivated to make it through those intervals when you're out of shape because they're way worse to do than when you have a good baseline conditioning, but you can do it. And I ultimately end up being quite good that season. So now people always ask, you know, well, what's best? Well, I don't know. I don't have a parallel hypothetical identical Colby. I can compare from that 
year in the same universe and give them on two different training paths and see which one won more races or which one sucked more or whatever. So it's kind of a meaningless question. Did the athlete get results? Did they progress? Did they get stronger? In my case, the answer was yes. If you apply reverse periodization to someone, I mean, from my perspective, the potential pros and cons are if someone's really out of shape and you give them a bunch of intensity, there's a good chance they're going to drill themselves into a hole pretty quickly, or there's a good chance they're going to get injured unless they're very highly functional off the couch and their bike setup's perfect. And also there's some athletes who, whose form degenerates very, very rapidly under load. So you have these athletes who look really tidy and then you give them one load and they're out of shape and then they're just all over the place, right? Well, there's a good chance they're going to end up with back pain or, or there's a reason why technique usually comes before high level efforts. So is reverse periodization a bad thing for someone like in the classic examples, Wiggins, everybody's talking about how he did it this year and, or not this year, but whatever year it was, they were training for team pursuit. Also keep in mind, like Wiggins has already been racing his bike for 30 years at that point. You know, he can jump off the couch and do a 4k pursuit or a bunch of 2ks on the track, probably be just fine. That doesn't mean that some guy who's got three years of racing cat fours to cat threes should get off the couch and try the same thing and expect the same results. Let's get back to the show. All right, Joe, you're on the clock. You've got one minute. We want you to take all of this great discussion about periodization and wrap it into 60 seconds of take-homes for the listeners out there. What are the most important things that people should know about periodization? The very most important thing is that the whole idea is to prepare for a race. So churning needs to become as much like the race as possible over time. And that usually involves something like about you know, roughly 12 weeks of training. So that's the time period. Over that time period, training becomes much like the race. So that's the bottom line of, of, of training, the bottom line of periodization. And I would suggest the only thing besides that the athlete needs to be concerned with is keeping it as simple as they possibly can so it doesn't become overly complex. Trevor, what do you think? So I think I have two things. One is periodization is one of these things that gets really sexy and People hear about something like reverse periodization or block periodization and thinks that's what they have to do. My biggest advice is basically to reiterate what Joe just said. It's keep it simple. And just because it's old doesn't mean it isn't proven and effective. The second point I have is we obviously just touched on the surface of this. We didn't go into how long should your mesocycles be? What should you be? How should you be mapping out your week? Should all your weeks be exactly the same? There, there's dozens of questions we didn't address. And so Joe didn't do this. I will give him the plug. This is all covered very, very well in the newest edition of the Cyclist Training Bible. So if you're interested and you want to learn more, I highly recommend picking it up and, and reading the, the three chapters he has on periodization. I think my take home would be to not be intimidated by this. It, it can be very simple. You know, I remember the first time I picked up a, an older edition of the the training Bible. And it's really something you can work your way through stepwise. It helps you think about the season. It helps you understand who you are as a racer. It helps you understand your goals. And then you can, you know, the periodization model helps you create that map. Like Joe was saying, like an engineer, a coach tries to get you from where you are to where you need to be, build that bridge to get, to get you there or a staircase, however you want to, whatever analogy you want to look at. Don't be intimidated and work your way through the method. And it actually can be quite simple. And as, as we talked about today, very effective. All, All right. right. Thanks, Joe. It was great talking with you. Sure, guys. Enjoyed it. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velonews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. We love your comments. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between velonews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, Joe Friel, Sepkus, Paulo Sadana, Colby Pierce, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.